And just like that, we're back. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, first and foremost. Foremost? That's not a word. Welcome to the State of the Universe. My name is Brendan. Thank you for being here. Today's episode, episode 85, features the great Dr. Stefan Alexander, who we've been trying to get on the show for a long time. He might have been like the fifth person I ever messaged, and we went back and forth a thousand times, and we finally made it happen. Stefan is a physics professor at Brown University, a renowned jazz musician, and the author of the book The Jazz of Physics, which is a, a autobiographical reflection on his research and his experience marrying music, one of his passions, with physics, his other passion. He has a new book coming out later this year called Fear of a Black Universe, and there'll be links to, to all of that down below, so I encourage you to check that out. Um, and, you know, a lot of Stefan's work revolves around the worlds of cosmology, particle physics, and quantum gravity. And because of that, we begin the conversation by talking about some of his current uh, projects. And those center around black holes. And so naturally that leads to a, a conversation about black holes, general relativity, and trying to marry general relativity and quantum mechanics. Where does the problem lie? Why are black holes such an interesting topic? And why does every conversation about um, quantum gravity or about general relativity seem to revolve around black holes? It turns out they're very interesting test beds for this kind of research. And listen... These, seem, these transitions are so seamless. They're so seamless. Let me tell you something else about black holes. Let me tell you something else about black holes. When I lay my head down at night on my pillow, I doze off into a slumber that could only be described as a black hole. And what puts me into that proverbial black hole? None other than Premium Jane CBD. Go to premiumjane.com slash universe or go to premiumjane.com and use code name universe. Get 20% off anything you order and buy all the CBD products you want. They got bath bombs. They got oils. They got tinctures. They got anything you could anything you could ask for. They got face cream. All right? Face cream. So listen, I love CBD. It helps me get the best sleep that I can get with a product that's actually natural. I don't have to take Ambien and I fall right to sleep. I have great refreshing sleep. So that's why I love it. There's other reasons that you could love it and maybe you do love it. But go there. Uh, premiumjane.com slash universe 20% off go check it out now we begin the conversation by talking about the black holes and then we transition into talking more about the culture of physics and Stefan writes at length about the culture of physics and the ways in which his unique upbringing and his unique experiences in jazz helps him become a better physicist and so we have a discussion about how everyone can be a better physicist if they were just able to marry what they do um, for fun, what they do outside of physics with physics itself, and, and try to come up with a synergy between who they are and what they study. A lot of times that's not something people do. So we talk about that. We talk about whether what lessons we can learn from music, you know? And, and you know, I'll leave a little cliffhanger. We talk about why physicists should be more like the Wu-Tang Clan. And listen, you'll have to listen to figure out what the hell I'm talking about. So now, we talk about that. Then we also transition into, Stefan is also uh, the president of the National Society of Black Physicists. And now that's important because right now, every university on the planet Earth it has a DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts underway. And the goal of many of those is to increase the representation of black physicists. So I talked to him at length why 
are some of those, or rather, how can we come up with good programs to do that? And are any of the methods that are currently being employed by people across the world even incredibly popular methods? I feel that many of them are way more, way more performative than they are pragmatic. A lot of people want to seem like they're solving a problem without actually solving a problem. And part of that has to do with the fact that many people might not understand the problem to begin with. So we have a lengthy discussion about that, a great conversation about how we can defeat the sort of monoculture that exists in physics, because that's one thing we need to do. Physics will persist, or rather physics will be a better place our understanding of the universe will will uh, increase if we can have different cultures um, who look at the world differently trying to understand the universe in which we live, and that's only sensible, in my opinion. That doesn't, you know, that does not. You don't need to read some literature to understand that. That seems to me to be pretty obvious. Now, with that being said, p please, we got the we got the studio kind of set up. It's shitty. You know, I finally decided to, like, really put effort into the studio and the video component of the show. And then, number one, in the Stefan episode, my camera breaks or something. And instead of recording with the HD camera, it records with the shit camera on the laptop. So the, uh, it sucks. All right? But that's, not, that's okay. The intro and everything's good. And then, and then, I bought a house. So now I got to pack this studio up and move it to somewhere else. So I don't know what's happening, Okay life's a mess but anyway please check out the youtube uh, subscribe there if you're not already rate and review the show on apple Podcasts if you enjoy it if not take your phone here's my phone if you're watching on youtube this is what you do take your phone right iphone you could go on apple Podcasts, rate the show five stars and that's what i did i rated my own show five stars because i'm a responsible adult but if i didn't want to rate my show five stars and instead i wanted to rate it one star I would delete Apple Podcasts from my phone. I would walk to the interstate, which is about 700 feet behind me, and I would throw my phone in the interstate. And if you want to rate this show one star, I encourage you to do the same. Take your phone, put it in the interstate, because you don't deserve it, okay? And now that that's out of the way, everyone, check out uh, all the links below for uh, Stefan. Buy his book. Check out his stuff. I really hope you enjoy the conversation. And um, this podcast is a grade A podcast. We all know it. Hope you enjoy. I think uh, we're, we can just hop right in. So, yeah. Dr. Stefan Alexander, I know your friends call you Steph, and I hope yeah. I'll call you Stefan for now. And I hope okay. that by the end of this episode, I've earned the right to uh, to call you Steph. So, I, I want to start. The other day, I was in a, a colloquium at RIT where I'm at now, mm -hmm. and David Spurgle was giving the the talk. And I know he's a mentor of yours. Yeah. And so he said something that was really interesting um, to me. He said that if you ever want to talk to a, a physicist or an astronomer, and, and this rings true for me, all you have to do is walk up to them and say, what are you currently working on? And it'll spark the conversation for hours. And so I, I had never done that before. Normally I come in and I'm like, hey, Stefan, let's talk about strings and let's talk about cosmology and let's talk about et cetera, et cetera. I just want to start there. I think that's a really cool idea. What are you working on right now, Stefan? First of all, he's absolutely correct. And yeah. then um, what am I working on? I'm working on a couple of things and confused about most of them. Yeah, so um, this is the first time, um, you know, a, a lot of my work is in general relativity um, applied to cosmology. So this is the first time 
um, that I've um, that I'm working on black holes. So currently, so for many years, for many years, I've had this question, this puzzle, this thing that I never really understood, and it has to do with um, how a, you know how a black hole forms. The usual story is that a star, you know, under its own gravitational pressure. Um, um, there's something called the degeneracy pressure, which is the pressure due to the fermionic matter, like electrons and quarks. And, um, and so that basically, because of the Pauli exclusion principle that these particles don't want to occupy the same space, there's an impression, there's a pressure that prevents that from, you know, the star from further collapsing. But eventually what happens is that a gravitational force overcomes that and, and then you collapse into this black hole, All right? And so one question I had was, well, suppose that um, all of the fermions actually did not escape, right? So that was, that, that was one question, right? One question was like, well, if I form a black hole, um, do all the fermions escape? And I thought that that was a silly question. I, did, I never pursued that ever again. And then there are times when like, you know, during the last maybe 10 years where I would be hungry <laughs> for a project, meaning that I'd be in, the I'd be in some kind of um, imagination desert, mm -hmm. right? Where I you know, need to be working on a project. I mean, we get paid to do research, so I have to find projects. I got to find projects for students, um, PhD students and undergraduates. And I said, let me revisit this problem again. And again, I, I, I thought about, okay, forget about that question. What, what about just the you know, good old fashioned, I, I imagine I have a black hole, it already exists. And, and then I put a fermion, you know, I have fermionic fields. Remember now, these things are fields, they're not just particles. Fermions are also fields like electromagnet, like electromagnetism is yeah. a field. Now, can we, can we pause real quick for the like list? Can we pause real quick and, and sort of just explain yeah. in one or two sentences what you mean by a fermion and a fermionic field? Absolutely. Um, the best way to explain that is to just go back to what we're familiar with, which electric and magnetic fields, right? right? These are, these are um, the electric and magnetic fields are um, lines of force that are invisible that have influence on other um, for example, um, you know, a magnet, the way we should think about a, mag a magnetic field is that a magnet generates invisible lines of force that can warp and bend. And those, those field lines right, will actually reach out and influence another magnet um, by applying a force. Um, these field lines also contain energy in it. All right. So you should think about some sort of like, you know, invisible fabric, okay, that's emanating in space, an empty space as a field. Um, the field can vibrate and oscillate. And if it vibrates and oscillates with, this, with some kind of resonance, there's a quantum phenomenon called particle creation. Mm -hmm. So the photon is an example of the particle that gets created from the vibration of the electromagnetic field, okay? So good. So photons are force carriers these these are the particles that are exchanged right that communicate forces between magnets and you know um, electric forces for example um and that's what Feynman taught us mm -hmm. okay the there are other fields which are we normally think of like the electron as a particle and we think about the proton as um cons whose constituents are quarks which are particles 
But the correct way to think about them more fundamentally is that the electron, like electromagnetism, is a field, right? Right. And that field can be distributed throughout space and time. Mm -hmm. And then the electron is a quanta, right? A, a specific um, um, quantized vibration of the electro of, of the fermionic fields. Now, the electrons, the neutrinos, the quarks, the muons, all these particles in our standard model are just, they belong, you know, they belong to the category of particles called fermions, named after Enrico Fermi. And Fermi, um, they, they have a special property that make them the matter content of the universe, not the force carriers like the photon, mm -hmm. which is that they, um, first of all, they have they usually have mass, right? They usually have a half integer spin, meaning that they can only spin around at a half integer amount. Right. Okay. A good way to intuit what a half integer spin is, um, a good way to intuit what a half integer spin is, is, um, is to, um, so for example, an integer spin is that when I go, if, if, if you know, if I'm, if you're facing, just, you know, if, if you spin around 360 degrees, mm -hmm. that's integer spin. When you come back to yourself, and 360 degree rotation, that's what we call an integer spin. A half integer spin is what? If I, I, if I spin around set, you know, twice, um, 740, then I come back to myself. It's kind of weird. Right. Okay. That's yeah. a weird problem. So anyway, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm um, diverging. So fermionic matter um, are half integer spin, things like the electron, like the quarks, and they, um, they're called fermion. They also have another special property, which is that they cannot, they, they cannot occupy the same place at the same time. They are what we call exclusive. They obey something called the exclusion principle. Mm -hmm. They have a, this property that if I try to take an electron and I, put, I try to put in another electron, right, mm -hmm. in the same position, now there's another thing that we use the word state. So we cannot, the electron um, cannot occupy the same state at the same time. And its yeah. position counts as that, mm -hmm. and as one of those states. And so, as a result, that's why matter occupies space. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, now, that's now why you have atoms and photons, um, so-called bosons, can occupy the same state, the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of um, you know a little primer. Yeah. So um, now let, let's. You said something interesting earlier, which which I'm curious about. I'm not a theoretical physicist by training. I suppose I am. I, I do theory. But not in yeah. this, and not in this, um, not in this particular field. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm interested when you say I've done work on black holes. I'm interested when you say, um, you said when you create a black hole, are there fermions inside? Is that what you said? And then you said that was the first. Yeah, the first iteration of my confusion was that question. But then my that question, when I realized I had it was either a bad question or I didn't have an answer to that question, or I couldn't set a problem up right. To, yeah. to, to address that question. I gave up. I just moved on to other projects. But years later, um, I started, I, I, I asked a different question. Mm -hmm. And the question was simply, you know, if I already have a black hole, <laughs> right? Right. A good old fashioned black hole that we see in M87 there. Yep. Right. Um, and the question now is, well, in a more idealized world, let's imagine there is just a black hole, a non-rotating one, a Schwarzschild black hole, for example. Mm -hmm. 
And I just say, I have a fermionic field um, in its presence. What is what does that system look like? You know, what you know, is that can can they coexist, number one? Right. Um, what is the fate of that situation? Yeah, so no, I, yeah. I, I'm interested in I, I think the first question being naive about the more theoretical side of, of this question. I'm interested in why you think the first question is is poorly posed and 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 maybe my and I'll describe what I think the question is. And then mm -hmm. you tell me if my understanding of the question is wrong. So what sure. I think the question is, is when we think about a, a black hole per se, um, think of it, I guess I'll think of it as, you know, an infinite dent in space time. Um, and, and the things that go in the black hole occupy the space at the bottom of the infinite well. Yeah. Are you, is the question problematic because you cannot put two fermions in that same, the bottom of that same well? And occupying the same state is that sort of the nature mm -hmm. of the bad of the of the question not being well posed. I'll say that one more time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, um, I I'm trying to figure out why the question is is poorly posed, and I'm wondering if it is such that you cannot take two fermions and make them occupy the same space at the bottom of the infinite well that is the black hole. Yes, that's exactly why. That's. That's right. So there's, okay. you've nailed you've nailed um, the paradox. So um, very good. So the black hole has a singularity when R goes to zero. When mm -hmm. I go right to the center of the black hole. Yes. All right. So what the question is? Well, if I now take the fermion to that singularity, mm -hmm. right? Um, since the fermion itself, right, um, doesn't want to the fermionic field contains in it right fermionic particles yeah so what is the fate of the fermionic field um if at all right mm -hmm. um so in other words there's another way of saying it can can the fermionic field actually fuzz out the singularity mm -hmm. yeah right because mm -hmm. they're fuzzy right that's right. the other way of looking at it mm -hmm. because of this exclusion or exclusion exclusion principle it could be that that point where we claim that, where we see that all the curvature and all the energy goes to infinity, the so-called singularity, maybe the, quant the quantum mechanics of the fermion mm -hmm. um, goes in, you know, if, if it's forced, if it, if it wants to go to that singularity, might regulate or fuzz out or smooth out the singularity. Yes. That would be one interesting outcome, uh, well, a, a tremendous outcome, because mm -hmm. then you would have non-singular black holes, right? Yeah, yeah, I, um, and, yeah. sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I really feel like this question is interesting because um, the insinuation, or rather the, 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 I guess what's a good, the initial conditions in the argument are that there is a singularity inside of the black hole, right? That's right. And could there be a situation in which um, even general relativity does not understand black holes well enough? And there isn't actually an R equals zero type singularity. And there's some like, I've, I've often thought, um, I used to describe black holes. I worked in a planetarium as an undergraduate. And mm -hmm. I, I would, we would always do these shows. It was like a really unique, uh, one of these sort of new age planetariums where, um, you, you know, it's, it's less dots on the ceiling and more like, let's watch a supernova, you know, that sort of thing. And I would often describe 
Um, so it's like a movie theater or an IMAX theater above you. And you talk about physics. And I would often describe black holes to people uh, intuitively as saying, um, don't imagine a singularity uh, in order to conceptualize the black hole. Instead, imagine there's a star in there. There's an actual star. And the mm -hmm. star is emitting photons like our sun. But the photons do not have the energy to escape. And so if you were looking at that star from far away, the photons would go up and they would, they would come back down at a certain point and you would not see the star. This, I think, is a good conceptual way to understand a black hole. But I'm curious if something like that could actually exist, if there could be some fundamental structure of the black hole itself that is preventing the escaping of the photons. Yes. And the answer is um, the answer is that there are some solutions and, um, you know, they um, there are some solutions that kind of capture what you're talking about. I mean, so my um, colleague, um, you know, Emil Matola and Mazur, um, they um, create they constructed um, an object It's called the Gravistar, mm -hmm. which is it, it's a situation like a black hole. It has it, it, it um, impacts such a tremendous amount of curvature um, due to the high density of this star mm -hmm. that it exactly, that you, there still is um, structure there, right? Yes. Um, concentrated um, in some spherical region, mm -hmm. but it bends space time so much that light doesn't escape. So it looks like a black hole. Mm -hmm. So it's a black hole mimicker, so-called black right. hole mimicker. Um, the horizon structure, right, um, is different, okay, than an ordinary um, black Schwarzschild black hole, mm -hmm. where you know, where there's just basically some infinite amount of mass concentrated at the singularity, yeah, for which we don't can't use standard physics to talk about what that mass, you know, what the constituent is, yes, right, um, and um, so yeah, so those solutions do exist, but. Those solutions, you know, again, they they have their own um, problems, mm -hmm. and part of what I'm looking at now is to back off and solve a more simple problem. Okay, mm -hmm. so now to answer your question, what am I thinking about now? Is what happens if I have a fermionic field moving into a black hole near the horizon? So there's a real black hole there a real Schwarzschild black hole, right? We're not claiming we know what's going on inside the black hole. We, right, there's some mass of something. It just has mass, right? And it's highly concentrated inside the horizon of the black hole, right? Um, now, the thing about, the, about black holes, as you remember, um, we can talk about the mass only by known information about the horizon, mm -hmm. so-called no-hair theorem, right? right that all of the information um, about the black hole can be known um, by computing the area of the horizon. So it's not volumetric. You don't need to know what's going on inside the volume um, once you're past the horizon, um, going into the horizon. Once you know the area of the horizon, mm -hmm. you can know the mass of the black hole, all right? Which yeah. is, um, so that's, so, so now I say, okay, I have a. So let's focus on this horizon. Mm -hmm. Let's say there's some real physics going on at this horizon. Now I take this fermionic field, and I, 
I, I, I study what it looks like as it goes in horizon. And so this is what we've discovered so far. Mm -hmm. So what, the way to study that problem is you, you go back to Uncle Albert Einstein. <laughs> He's all out, all, the uncle of all physicists and astrophysicists. Yes. And we say, okay. So he said, okay, take general relativity and go back to the situation where you first encountered this black hole, which is what we call the vacuum Einstein equations. Mm -hmm. right which is that the left hand side the, of that famous equation r mu nu right actually g mu nu the einstein tensor yep is actually equal to zero on the left hand side so there's no it's vacuum there's no um energy momentum mm -hmm. right and then you go but instead of doing that you must include now the energy momentum or you must include the fermionic fields in the einstein equation yeah the first question you should ask yourself is well wait a minute Fermions have spin. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean now for an object with spin to be moving in a situation where I have perfect spherical symmetry? Right. Right? Because the, the fact that the spin is pointing in a given direction will, you know, seems to break this um, the symmetry, um, the perfect spherical symmetry. Right. Okay. Well, you can solve that problem by studying two fermions. Such mm -hmm. that the two fermions basically their spins um, counter align, and they basically when you add it up, it's as if like that constituent is spin zero, mm -hmm. zero spin. All yeah. right. So now we study two fermions in this black hole, and we find an interesting result so far, and that is um, the, the 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 curve background of the of the curve background mm -hmm. that the black hole generates actually amplifies acts as a like you know think about now the curvature as a, a volume knob on mm -hmm. a stereo and the higher the curvature i can imagine turning the volume up the, now imagine the fermionic field its amplitude or it's, it has a loudness how much fermionic field there mm -hmm. is so what is going on is that the the curve the curvature due to the black hole um, near the black hole's event horizon amplifies the fermionic fields, um, um, fermionic fields amplitude. Okay. Okay. It amplifies the fermionic field. In a, um, and we are now asking ourselves what happens now if you, since fermionic fields want to be quantum more than anything else, mm -hmm. what happens when I turn on quantum mechanics? near the horizon mm -hmm. and what we are hypothesizing or me me and um my um um my former postdoc evan mcdonough he's at the university of chicago he's now a postdoc there um it's really funny really ironic he is the i think the nambu um i want to say the nambu postdoc i think his postdoc is in some way affiliated with nambu who won a Nobel prize mm -hmm. um for for um the for the strong interactions something called chiral symmetry breaking and it's really funny that the physics that we're using evan and and gabe my postdoc at brown that we are um it's using the same physics that nambu used All right and if you turn up so what we're hypothesizing if you turn on quantum mechanics near the horizon for these fermionic fields mm -hmm. the hypothesis is that the fermions undergo a superconducting phase transition. Mm -hmm. And so you end up 
the idea could be that the horizon of the black hole is smeared with a superconductor of fermionic fields, like a shell, mm -hmm. right, yeah. of superconducting fermions. We haven't shown that yet, right? Mm -hmm. We're like literally in the middle of this calculation, and it's a, it's, you know, you're doing something okay when you you encounter a calculation that no one else has done, right? Or or no one seems to know how to do. And yeah. actually, I've got I got into a little bit of a debate with my postdoc yesterday um, because I was a bit impatient. So I was like, "Where's the answer? Well, I want the answer." Right? Mm -hmm. um, but no one has done the calculation yet. Well, you can do it. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Otherwise, I'll do it. <laughs> So anyway, that's um, yeah. Now, that's now, what I'm thinking about these days. Now this is like I, I've so I mentioned I worked on black holes. What for the first two years in, as a PhD student, I I worked on um in particular simulations of black holes, right? These sort of GRMHD simulations, and one of the things that Stefan, you can still yeah. hear me, right? Yeah, I can hear. Okay, yeah. cool. Okay, I didn't know. Um, and one of the things that is obvious when you do these types of simulations or calculations, if you will, um, is that you can never quite reach the complexity of the real universe. You can, you can get close, but it's tougher and tougher and tougher as you add more components. And so I'm curious, um, do you intend to do things like add spin to the black hole? Do you intend to, to do these types of uh, calculations where you try to approximate... Um, the types of black holes that we might see, say, at the center of a, a galaxy. That's a very good, um, I, I think a very good point you raised there that um, oftentimes, you know, at, at the end of the day, when we do physics or even science, I mean, but let's, talk, let's just talk about physics and astrophysics. Our calculations never, right, they're an approximation to, mm -hmm. with all, to the complexity of the real world. Yeah. And that, you know, there's no such thing as an isolated system in the real universe. Everything is, you know, and so we have to make approximations to, 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 to make progress. Um, and the answer is yes. I mean, once we understand, and the other thing I would just add to that in terms of a strategy for solving problems or formulating problems, I mean, like, as you know, a big part of your, our education um, in the physical sciences is in fact learning the art of making these approximations, right? Right. Um, perturbation theory, right? You know, mean field, you know, approximation. There are all these approx toolkits mm -hmm. of approximations, basically, so that we can make progress. Otherwise, you'll find yourself stuck for forever, right? If you're really trying to solve the entire problem. Yeah. Um, you must make progress. And yes. one of the ways that we do it in physics is to embrace our stupidity, mm -hmm. right? We, I mean, we, you know, a lot of people think that physicists are, we're like, oh, yeah, these people are so smart. Actually, a really good physicist is someone that that embraces their inner dumbness, right? Yes. Like you have to, what I mean by this specifically. So we got the situation, look, for all intents and purposes, the black holes that were seen out there in Sagittarius and M87 are spinning black holes. And they have a lot of junk around them. They have eight, there's you know, the AGN, right? Yeah. Active galactic nuclei. So there's a lot of what we call dirty astrophysics. Yes. Right? Um, going on. And no way, I mean, you know, that we're going to solve that analytically with pen and paper, like that system. Mm -hmm. So that's why. So what we do to make progress is that we take what we call a toy model. We take the simplest possible system um, where we can set the problem up mathematically and try to solve that problem first. And if we can solve that problem, because there's no guarantee that we might, but, but we might even be able to solve the simplest problem. If we can make progress, then 
we make it a little bit more sophisticated. So that's right. If we solve the simple problem of, you know, two fermionic fields um, with zero net spin and a non-rotating black hole that's completely isolated, right? There's one black hole in this entire universe, right? Um, then what we'll do, the next step will be is to turn, make the black hole spinning. Mm -hmm. That'll be the next step. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, yeah. I think it's very interesting. I took a um an economics course. I remember I was like a sophomore in undergrad, mm -hmm. and I I remember vividly the econ professor saying to me um saying to me in economics we assume everything away that we don't want to deal with, and at the time I had a little bit of physics superiority. I wasn't a physicist yet. I was like, oh, see, you're not solving real problems. You're not solving hard problems. You can't actually apply your solutions to the real world. And, and I come to learn some years later that we are doing nothing uh, different than exactly that. We also are assuming away um, many, of the, uh, many of the details in order to actually get anywhere. So this is yes. very true. Yes, I yeah. agree with that. Now, this is, um, this is, I, I'm so glad I took David. Uh, but we are smarter though. Than, I'm just kidding. Oh yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, they know that we don't need to tell them. They know that. Yeah. Uh, um, now, uh, they, they're richer though, I think in general. So oh yeah. That's, they have that's, us there. Uh, yeah. that's right. That's how we can coexist. Yes. They, so they can fund our research projects. Yeah. We, we might be able to, you know, <laughs> mess around with, with, uh, tensorial equations, but they give us money. So, you know, it is what it is now. Um, I'm glad I took David's advice on this because I might start every podcast this way. This is a good, this was a good conversation. Um, at a, yeah, at a nice David is real. David is great that way. He, um, some, he will, he has a way of like, he is that type of uh, physicist, right? He, mm -hmm. he's he managed to solve some really like, major problems just by, in fact, I've, I, I must admit, I've learned some of that from David, but mm -hmm. you know, how to, simplify a problem knowing what to what about the system to simplify and exactly yes. what, you know, so yeah yeah no i i i think that that's a he's i could tell with my conversation with him yesterday or two days ago and i might have gotten two questions in and i could tell in his answer to those two questions how thoughtful of a person he is so i'll have to reach out to him and try to get him on on the show too i know he's a busy man nowadays um but but anyway i'm i know you've worked on on string theory uh, when I figured we'd have a conversation about uh, GR, trying to unify it with quantum mechanics, trying to unify it with some predictions of the standard model. Um, I wanted to touch on string theory. There's so much I want to touch, but we don't have an infinite amount of time. So I do have a question for you since I know you did spend some time on string theory. And I'm curious. And still do. <laughs> and still do. I'm curious if you could map out the evolution of that field over over your career because i vividly remember being in high school and reading books by brian green or something and thinking string theory is going to be the biggest thing that there is and now fast forward you know a decade i don't hear about it much and when i do hear about it it's generally physicists who know more than me criticizing it for being wrong in one way or another. So I'm curious if you could track the evolution of string theory over your career. Yeah, so yeah, um, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, it's funny because as you know, I have a, a, um, a I just, that, that's, that's um, fresh in my mind because I just literally just finished my, um, my um, upcoming, my new book, my mm -hmm. second book, right? Yeah. Um, um, fear of a black universe. 
And, um, and in, in that book, there, there are two chapters that actually talk about my dance, actually, because that evolution does involve loop quantum gravity as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, and it had to do with when I was a grad student, and this was in the 90s, um, of course, I got into theoretical physics through cosmology and studying the early universe, cosmic inflation, and how to resolve that we know we knew it was a smells like the correct theory of the early universe mm -hmm. because of the predictions that it made using quantum field theory on an expanded an inflate an, you know exp a rapidly expanded space-time background and so that was the place where we where the attention of any anyone that loves general relativity and quantum field theory mm -hmm. um, wants to actually have a day job and 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 actually do real calculations and push the theory to the next level, right? Of prediction and right. of deepening our, our understanding of where quantum, you know, where the, the um, not the dichotomy, but the disagreements between quantum, quantum field theory and general relativity meet mm -hmm. or might need to be unified. It's, let's look at the early universe where we approach the Big Bang singularity and curvatures, you know, um, going infinite on you and where quantum mechanics becomes very strong. Mm -hmm. So who wins? Who wins the fight? Okay, right. If there is a fight, um, and I and then string theory at that time was you know yeah if you were a, th a young theory student at that time PhD student it was the game in town it, mm -hmm. it was it, you know it was understood that this theory of what does it say I mean it says that take no gravity just take a, a, a string moving in a two-dimensional intrinsic a space-time intrinsic to itself and there's no sense of um a space-time yet but the minute the string starts on the undergoing quantum vibration it generates its own space-time in 10 dimensions all right um in other words the statement there is that it generates um einstein's field equations okay um but in 10 dimensions right so gravity as we know it, which is general relativity, emerges out of string theory as an emergent quantum property of the string. And that's a beautiful idea. And I remember one of the first things, one of the most satisfying things I did as a grad student um, with the help of a postdoc, Sanjay Ramgulam, who was um, a postdoc at the time at, at Brown, um, was that we went through and did the calculation um, of the so-called beta function. We calculated Einstein's field equation from the string, from the string mm -hmm. world sheet. For those of you that um, that the world sheet is basically a, a sheet, two-dimensional surface, a string sweeps out as it moves through its space-time. So we, it was one of the most satisfying things. You calculate this thing and you get the Einstein field equations. Mm -hmm. And so, <clears throat> so this is this was a state of string theory. It was very beautiful. And so then you can try to address questions in cosmology. So my so it was really how the string theory interface and how does general relativity come out of string theory? And that was the first thing, how, um, how to think about the early universe, right? Questions about the early universe um, through the lens of string theory. And it turns out that there was a lot of opportunity for, for, for people like myself back then. And that's, you know, so when I became a postdoc, um, I went to Imperial College. I wrote one of the first papers that basically figured out a pathway to merge string theory with mm -hmm. cosmic inflation, right? So how to get cosmic inflation 
um, out of the language or through the lens of string theory itself, mm -hmm. right? And that used some ideas um, in string theory called D-brains, yeah. right? And D-brains are like, like a, a, a two-brain, D is a dimension, is nothing more than a membrane, a two-dimensional right. yeah. hypersurface. So a three-brain is a three-dimensional membrane, so mm -hmm. on and so forth. And these are stringy objects, meaning that they're hypothetical. Like if you could think what a, a two-brain is, mm -hmm. right, is basically that surface that strings collectively end on. So instead of focusing on the string, you focus on the surface that the strings are collectively ended on. Yeah. And that will be a two brain. And so these objects um, in, invented by Joseph Polchinski um, are, you know, are states in string theory. And what I did as a postdoc was to show that, you know, provide um, a framework and some calculations that said that it's possible that cosmic inflation can um, come from the interaction of D brains. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, so that made that allowed me to make a little bit of a name for myself um, in at the interface of string theory and cosmology, um, and then from there on, believe it or not, once I started to realize that there were problems with my, you know, with with those models itself, like I, we kind of like it was kind of like Sisyphus. You got to the top of the hill, and then you know, it's a Sisyphus of, um, of theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. What makes you roll back down the hill is that going up the hill was you you try to address some problem you know in this case what is the tension between general relativity and quantum field theory um in curved spaces that's like oh that string theory is going to get me up that hill but when i got to the top of the hill i realized that strength the string theoretic framework had its own problems and that rolled me back down the hill of course yeah All right so what happened there was i um i tried to address those problems other people tried to address those problems and you know, but I kind of lost my patience. And then I got involved in other problems that had to do more with like, okay, instead of just getting wrapped up in the theoretical issues, it's mm -hmm. not really my strong point. Um, there are other string theorists out there that are much more equipped. I started working on, you know, problems having to do with Chern Simon's gravity, which was a, 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 an offspring of, of the system and string theory I was studying and how that had to do with um, potential ways that you can have observable effects, right? Yeah, um, we don't know what the final answer of the unified field theory is, the so-called quest to find you know, the unification or quantum gravity mm -hmm. is yet. Um, if we ought to know what that is, right? I believe that string theory will be part of that final story. Mm -hmm. um, and, but even if it isn't, I think one of the things I found to be really interesting was that as my one of my mentors, uh, B.J. Bjorken, one of the people that, you know, um, predicted the existence of the quarks, told me, he goes, string theory is technology. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it by by studying string theory um, as a framework to, you know, in cosmology. Right. Um, I was able to, like, identify certain um, constructs or tools within string theory. Let me give an example. Um, so string theory naturally predicts the, um, it, you know, the theory is, um, it is a quantum theory of gravity in the sense that you get gravity once you quantize the string and there's a self-consistency, like in order to have the theory be quantized, yeah, right, you, you have to make sure that the tenets of quantum mechanics is present, which is something called unitarity, that probability is conserved yeah. in, in string theory. And when you quantize 
certain field theories, like a, a string theory is like a field theory. You get things called anomalies and they have to be, these anomalies are in fact statements of violations of this unitarity. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so it turns out that string theory not, takes care of that problem itself yeah. <laughs> and it cancels these anomalies. Mm -hmm. And the way it does that is by introducing a new field. So the string generates its own field to cancel the anomaly. Guess what that field is? We call it in string theory, it's called the universal axion. Mm -hmm. It is the same axion field that Petsche and Quinn predicted before any string theory, right? They mm -hmm. postulated this field to cancel, to, um, to explain the strong CP problem, why the strong interaction doesn't see, have CP violation or, mm -hmm. or is, is nearly vanishing, yeah. right? This axion field. String mm -hmm. theory predicts this axion as a necessary ingredient. Yeah. So it's like, then if you look at all of the ways the axion shows, um, shows up in string theory, like it gives, um, it gives in, uh, interactions of quantum fields in particular, it interacts with gravity, yeah. with general relativity, mm -hmm. so as to create a left-right asymmetry between a gravitational wave. Yes. Now, the effect seems to be very tiny, but mm -hmm. part of the game is like, well, can you amplify that effect? Can you, by turn on high and higher curvature, can we see that effect? And so it was in that way that string theory became a very useful thing to me, mm -hmm. because even though I can't claim that I was able to solve the fundamental problems with the, the, the cosmological singularity, yeah. although people are working on my post, my PhD advisor, Robert Brandenberger and Cameron Buffer, they tried to address that problem. Paul Steinhardt and his collaborators have you and Neil Turok have tried to use string theory to resolve the Big Bang singularity. Um, but for me, it was these other things, these other um, jewels that string theory did provide mm -hmm. that actually really did help me reframe my questions. So yeah. by playing with the tools of string theory, I was actually able to you know, ask different questions that did give me you know, um, new research directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you've you've inspired me now to go look into the literature better on string theory because I don't know much about it and yeah. I will be honest I've gotten the impression from others that it's 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 on the way out but you've inspired me on the exact opposite in fact you've inspired me there's a lot to learn here and a lot to see um and and so yeah, well you know let me uh yes yeah, a very good point you raise here I mean I think one of the things one of the big my big um I didn't mean to cut you off but one of my no, big, no, no, um, fears with string theory is that you know it really seems to work nicely with supersymmetry, yeah, and that we did not see supersymmetry at the Large Hadron Collider where we were expecting to see it, mm -hmm. right? Meaning at the energy scales you're expecting to see super the unification, right, between um, matter and the force carrier, which is supersymmetry, bosons and fermions. Beautiful idea, very mm -hmm. exquisite theoretical framework that solves a lot of problems if it exists. Um, we didn't find it um, at the Large Hadron Collider. And, you know, that is, um, that is a, for me, like, you know, the fact that string theory does like supersymmetry mm -hmm. um, is a big fear that I have. But one, another way, another way we can say this though, is that supersymmetry could be active. That symmetry, remember, a symmetry can turn on at a given energy scale and yeah. it can turn off when I lower the energy scale, just right. like a magnet basically. Um, you know, at high temperature, the magnetization vanishes and at low temperatures, it emerges, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so likewise, you know, same pattern could emerge here. 
And it could be that supersymmetry is happening really, really, really close to the scale of unification, yeah. right? And, you know, inaccessible and only seen in the, early, in the very early universe. So my point is that, you know, I think that um, there are, at the very least, string theory is worth a, a serious study mm-hmm. for those of us who are interested in the program of unification, because uh, we learn, you know, we learn by learning where, where it has its problems in this unification quantum gravity thing, we can, it can inspire us to move in other directions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I, I think this is a perfect segue, actually, the talk of supersymmetry into um, what I want to cover next, which is the jazz of physics, okay? The title of your, your first, first book. And I wanted to talk about the, the cultural relationship that you find between creating music and pursuing your understanding of the universe, okay? Because you, I, I've listened to you talk probably six hours now over the past couple of days, as I normally do, prepping to talk to someone. Um, I listen to you talk. I listen to other interviews you've done and that sort of thing. And this is obvious to me that, well, it's not, it's not obvious. Like I had to come to it through some, uh, some understanding. I mean, you are very, very, um, you know, uh, forward about it, but music and physics in your life play an important uh, duality and, or, or synergy, if you will. And so I wanted to break this conversation into two spots. And I think supersymmetry touches on the first pretty, very well. You cite a, a high school teacher um, uh, by the name of Mr. Kaplan, Mr. Kaplan right? And I, w- I want to read a quote of his, well, it's of you stating something that he said. And the quote is, Mr. Kaplan demonstrated the courage to be true to himself. He demonstrated the courage to think differently and not fall into the traditionalism of one's field. I'm very uh, curious about this when it comes to um, science today, and supersymmetry is maybe an example of this. Do you think that there is a lot of people, and through any mechanism, it could be through funding, it could be through groupthink. I, I tend to think it's through funding. I think with the mechanisms by which we fund force people to be traditional. And we're very quick to say no supersymmetry, um, string theory predicted supersymmetry, supersymmetry. God, I cannot get that word out. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, should we throw away string theory? Um, and not should we, but many people have. And so I think there's a value in doing that because we do want to give money to things that are going to be fruitful, but we also have to take considerable risk and defy traditionalism. So I'm curious what music taught you about that, how you apply it to your life uh, in, in, inside of science, how you see the field, like if they could learn something from that, uh, all of that, please. Yeah, you raised some, you hit the hammer on the, the no, the nail on the head with your, your question. <clears throat> um, I think it's really, you know, when sometimes one's life condition reflects the um, the type of physics or the type of science or whatever you do. I think it clearly, yeah. you know, you can't escape how it reflects what you do. Right. So in my case, you know, I already I grew up in a in an environment or a background where um, that where there are collisions of different cultures or different. You know, I grew up in New York City in the Bronx and. Even there, I grew up in the generation where hip hop music, well, not that generation, but like maybe the second generation of, of, of hip hop rap music um, in the 80s, mm-hmm. 
late eighties. Um, and that was a product of, you know, the cultural um, um, blending of, you know, the, the hip hop, hip hop is the outcome of not, you know, of not living in one, only one culture, one tradition. Yeah. Um, and, but a combination, an amalgamation. And so I kind of, that's kind of who I am. And so the, the flip side of that is that you, you don't really fit in anywhere. You don't really fit into a club. Correct. So that was me. I mean, like, you know, and we can't escape the fact that, you know, I am a black physicist, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, not, I mean, and all that really means is that, you know, traditionally and historically, there just haven't been as many um, people that look like me yeah. um, from my culture back who have done you know, we're not part of that thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe jazz music and basketball, <laughs> yeah. but, um, all right. So, um, so all of those things combined is like, there was always a sense for me that I really didn't fit into a club. I didn't fit into the rain, I, the, I, you know, the reindeer games. Right. And, um, um, I had to learn how to, how to continue doing what I, what I'm doing, um, and coexist with that and make progress and succeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, well, two things happened. One is that I made, I did make friends. I mean, you know, Brian Keaton, David Spurgle, like, you know, Leon Cooper, mm-hmm. you know, I had, you know, throughout my journey, I've had Michael Peskin, you know, yeah. these are individuals that really showed up and supported and, and listened to my ideas, um, wrote papers with me, Lee Smolens, another person, yeah. um, there's a handful of so many great physicists, um, friends and colleagues that sort of like said, okay, you know, so that's one side, which is just like, you know, how do you coexist when you don't fit in a club? Yeah. Can I, can I, um, before you give the second side, I I really think that there's an important thing to to bring up here. I think that um, this is evident most in music and in science that people who don't fit into the club Mm. really, really find a way to uh, create genius, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, sort of Albert Einstein, whether it be Otis Redding in the 60s when he stopped doing so many covers and started writing Dock of the Bay before he tragically uh, uh, died, Uh, whether it be like Isaac Hayes' Hot Buttered Soul days where he didn't care about like radio play, he made 18 minute songs and they were genius, or whether it be, you know, 36 Chambers Wu-Tang, like they knew it wasn't gonna be on the radio, so they just made music from the heart. Right. There isn't enough of that in physics of people who say, you know, fuck the radio. I don't want to play my song on the radio. Let's do some cool right. physics. So I, right. I don't know. Where, do you agree with me on that? I do. I do. And when, as you're saying that, I'm, I think about like, you know, certain friends of mine who have done that, who have like, you know, they literally went off on their own. They had their own. They, they didn't rely, play what we say, play the game, rely on the constraints of the you know um the group think or like you know if you know if you don't fit in you don't get tenure you don't you know if you don't publish a certain amount of papers or do it this way or if you're not funded because um by you know the doe or nsf or whichever granting agencies you don't make progress you're out of the club so to speak you can't continue they said no you know screw that Mm -hmm. i'm i'm gonna you know i'm gonna you know, surf or do what I'm doing or work in Wall Street and continue developing my own my own ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, that some immediate people that come to mind is like my friend Eric Weinstein, uh, my um, Garrett Lisi, all friends of mine. Um, 
you know, and others. I mean, um, uh, Andy Rondando, you know, who still thinks about physics. So these are all people that have remained in touch with. And again, like they might be wrong what they're doing, but you know, we need we 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 need to embrace and yeah. support. Find a way to support, um, as you said, people that want to play their own song. And you know, maybe they don't. The price that comes out of that is that they don't like in the music thing. You don't know that you know uh, the two five one progression can be substituted with you know with with the Coltrane changes, right? You don't know certain technical language, the, the language of the inside game. But this is where we can we can support. We can find out ways, figure out ways to be supportive. Um, but those those of us who have made it and managed to coexist symbiotically. We are that bacteria that figured out how to live in the host body. Yeah. And I consider myself to be that person. I do consider myself to be an outsider within, right? Yeah. And I think what always, and one way I think I am kind of like that is that, just to give you an example, um, I was rejected for funding of a certain agency whose name I won't remember everything. And the criticism was, you know, it was a, a kind of a slap in the face, kind of like, it came across as if like I was being um, that the referee for this grant, for this important grant was, um, you know, at one level um, was um, praising me or um, and at the same time, you know, like putting me down, which was Alexander, um, Alexander's proposal, um, you know, um, will, um, Alexander proposes to test um, new frontiers, new you know observational frontiers of his own theories and his own ideas. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, I should be penalized because yeah. I'm getting you know we right. should fund if we're going to fund this guy. Understand that we're funding him so that he can go test his own ideas. It's like that's the idea. But that's the, that's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, and, these, I, and all these ideas have been published in yeah. referee top journals, right? Mm -hmm. So somehow that was seen to be. You know, there is a subtlety in that statement, which was, well, if he's not working on everybody else's idea, why should we fund him? You know? Yeah. 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 I think um, yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of, of of important stuff there. And I like so Avi Loeb is in, in the news recently because he's a, claiming things about a and then simultaneously talking about groupthink and science. And I I think we tend to throw away all of his claims because we disagree with the Oumuamua thing. Um, I, I'm talking about mm -hmm. astronomers in general, but I think that there's legitimate claims to be made about the way we do funding and the way in which it might sell into some groupthink type ideologies. We do mm -hmm. tend to pick our favorite, like uh, dark matter is a great example. Uh, how many wimp detectors are we going to build? before we decide to start funding other avenues. And there are other avenues being funded, don't get me wrong, but we need to, um, I believe we need to be way more risky in the way that we uh, fund science. And right now I think we're putting desk, where there's a lot of money being spent on putting a decimal place on the end of a number we already know, as opposed to trying to figure out a new number. Um, and I don't know if you agree, do you agree with that? I totally agree, I totally agree with that, yes. Okay. And we should do it. I mean, it's not like we have to be judicious of how we do it. Right. You have to be, you know, when you bet, when you make a bet on someone or, um, like, you know, some of these high risk ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if we're given, you know, let's say I'm making a number up, but we, if we're saying, okay, we got to, you know, throughout, we're going to like fund the, the total. And let's just talk about only theoretical, the theoretical science, because we're cheap. Let's say the budget is $20 million, right? 
mm-hmm. and we say, look, you know, you know, one million of that or two million of that should just go judiciously to people, you know, who we know they're bright, they have a track record of having published, but yes, they're generating their own ideas mm-hmm. and they um and they have a track record of having done that. And also that these ideas are not the status quo, we should we should bet on some of that. Yeah. Right. It doesn't take away from the fact that 18 million dollars, I'm making this number up, is going for everything else. But if it's all like, you know, eight, all 20 million dollars just goes for one and only one mode of uh, of operation, then, yeah, you're not you're not diversifying your portfolio as uh, our economy. One of my one of my I don't want to call it a goal, but one of my explorations of thought, I suppose, is trying to come up with a self-sufficient foundation like the Simons Foundation. Um, I'm very curious if there is a way outside of the academy where science can fund itself and if that funding mechanism can be tied into doing, uh, to giving money to people like you to say, okay, we know you're smart. We know you have a track record. Use this money to figure out more about the universe. Um, and, and, you know, as David Sprogel often puts it, funding people as opposed to funding ideas. I, I like that. Um, mechanism for pushing science forward give people the freedom to be individuals don't give individuals the freedom to work on you know putting decimal points at the end of numbers um i don't know yeah no i think i think that i do agree with with david's point about you know yeah um yeah i i think that um there is some wisdom to that because yeah there's a flip side of that too is that those of us who are operating like like you know who are say in, um independent against our own you know the, the mm-hmm. benefits yeah. in the community um we tend to also be more um we tend to mentor or take in students okay yeah we tend to replicate ourselves right, right. um well I, I i look at my i mean if you look at my research group of students i take in i am less um caring about whether or not you're married to one theory, one theory or one way of thinking about physics, I'm I'm looking at other things. I'm looking at, you know, are you a hard worker? Um, are you able to, you know, persist when a problem gets um, difficult? Are you able to, you know, think outside the box? I mean, obviously these are all subjective things, but yeah, you know, and also, can we talk? Can we have a conversation? Can we debate? Can we yeah. push each other? Right? There are other things there that I think that um should be valid rather than somebody that just um you know, um, says that, that just says, okay, I just believe I'm just going to blindly go and calculate, um, because I believe that this is the way to do it. And I just want to be a monk and follow the leader, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to, um, there's another point as it comes to music that I want to make, but I'll save that for now because I, I really want to talk since we're already talking about culture, and you had had pointed out that there are not many uh, black physicists out there um, like you, Stefan. I really want to discuss the National Society of Black Physicists. And, uh, you know, I, you're the president of that. Um, society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I want you to describe to me, maybe in the in the cultural reference frame that we're currently uh, occupying in our conversation. What are the struggles that you think black physicists face in in both the pipeline to getting to academics and in academics itself? Hmm, that's a um I think it's a it's a 
It, it, it depends. I mean, because, um, um, yeah, so I, and that's what I, you know, yeah. say, and, and by the way, I, am the president. Mm-hmm. I should, I should point out, I am not, cause I hope this question wasn't taken the wrong way. I am not saying, Hey, you black physicists, you're a monolith. Explain to me all of your problems. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm saying instead is there are cultural aspects of academics that might make it hard for uh, someone from your background to, to get, get ahead, to succeed. And, and I'm curious about what those are. So I just wanted to m- m- clarify. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, thanks for that, you know, and I, I, I um, yeah, so, you know, black, the, you know, black people in general, you know, if you want to say that social, that social, sociological, that social category, mm-hmm. um, is a very real one, right, in the sense that there's a, a shared history of oppression, a shared history of, you know, cultural continuities and things yeah. like that, um, and <clears throat> And yes, I think there are common things that many black physicists, not all, I mean, again, I, you know, got to be careful here that I, when I speak, I don't want to ever say I'm speaking for all black people. Of course. Um, but, um, but some common themes I, you know, I think that even I experience, I mean, if you're, I think there's an elephant in the room. An elephant in the room is like, well, um, because of our history in the United States, especially, and Europe, I, I lived in Europe for a couple of years, which is that somehow there's some you know, some sense that black people can't be as good or not as smart or, yeah. or as hardworking. There's stereotypes that I think still exist um, about like, you know, um, that, you know, about if you're, if you have, if you're a black person. Yeah. And I think that some of the ways that may play out is that you may not necessarily be invited to, to the study group. If you're taking, you know, intro physics, you, you know, you go to a conference and People, you know, you, you find yourself sitting in the corner of the room by yourself while everybody else is, you know, drinking coffee, talking physics. That still happens to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm a full professor. I, I went to a conference the other day and um, and I found myself literally standing by myself in the corner, very much wanting to talk to colleagues. And they were people were just talking to each other. Yeah. You know, n- no one came up to me to say, hey, what do you think about that last talk? And then what I would do is say, you know what, I got it. I have to be a professional. So I would then go up to a group and say, and start engaging in a conversation mm-hmm. to find again, what I might be saying would be, it would land on deaf ears. Yeah. So again, that kind of persistent, like um, isolation, loneliness, lack of being, of t- being taken seriously, which I believe some of it is rooted in these still underlying subconscious uh, racist presumptions. Yeah. As liberal as a person might like to think, you know, I think that these things are collectively happening. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I think that, yeah, so I do think that, that, that these are the things that it, these are the underlying, not the only underlying reason why I would say at different stages of the career path of a black physicist, um, we see certain um, symptomatic things coming out, which is, yeah. you know, maybe you're not publishing as much, you don't get into whatever those reasons are. Yes. Um, yeah, so I would say that that is a struggle um, and it, pl- it will play itself out in how you judge in a in a in an anonymous um review panel, mm-hmm. um you know you're less likely to get funded, and mm-hmm. all these things will play out and and bleed into um a career maybe of 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 a little of more struggle. Mm-hmm. And the National Society of Black Physicists, you know, we exist basically to 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 be productive and to support excellence where we where we can and collaborations where we can, and also how. How can we um, enable our members and um, um, to sort of coexist and 
and productively exist in the logic um, community. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I, I, I have ideas as it comes to DEI efforts, this diversity, equity, inclusion type uh, efforts that uh, I think maybe all universities weren't partaking in before last summer, but after the death of George Floyd, I think now they are. I think almost every oper- or every university is now has their sort of DEI um, efforts underway. And I find myself disagreeing with the majority of- Yeah, and I'm critical. I'm critical of some, of, I mean, I yeah. like the intent. Yes. But, you know, I'm critical of the, you know, setting out statements and words and doing, and this yeah. like, where's the action, right? right. Yeah. yeah, so, okay, I, I, th- that's good. I want to bring up, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of like, the idea of being colorblind now in society is, is kind of taboo, right? Because now, uh, especially in academic settings, you're supposed to see color. That's what a lot of these people say. And, and my argument has kind of always been, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, I was a drug addict between the ages of, of 12 and 16. And so wow. I grew up in what I would consider an incredibly inclusive environment. If you're in a drug den, there's right. no discrimination really happening. You all, <laughs> right? You want to get high. That's what you want to do. So, um, so it, I translate that cultural experience to academics and, and, you know, I would say that whilst I am, am not, uh, black, I would say that there are very few of me in academics too. And the academic circle would say, well, wait a minute, there's white guys everywhere. And I would say, but how many white guys are there who grew up in a single mother uh, home who were drug addicts between the age of 12 and 17 and, and failed throughout grade school um, to, to pass grades and then made their way to an astrophysics degree? And, I, and I'm not saying pity me. That's not the goal here. But what I'm saying is I think that there is um, a very important aspect of diversity in academics that isn't being talked about. And that aspect has nothing to do with color and everything to do with culture. And so I'm curious if a lot of these sort of um, new age cultural changes in academics to be very soft, to not have discussion, because, you know, like I said, I was in a drug den. You know what we did? We made fun of each other. We found brotherhood. We, um, we, we had probably more insightful conversations while, you know, snorting Percocets than I probably mm-hmm. have on the majority of, of a college campus while I've been here. And mm-hmm. so... That's not to say we should all be snorting Percocets all the time, but that's to say I think that there is a lot of turnoffs in academics that people from non-white progressive backgrounds look at and say, do I really want to be around some of these people? Do I really want to be in this circle? And then combined with that, the hypervigilance to stare at race, and maybe I'm wrong here, but what I find happening is that now a lot of people in academics look at someone like you, Stefan, out when they're getting coffee and they say, I need to be hyper vigilant when I'm talking to this person. So instead of going over and talking to them and walking on eggshells, I'm just not going to talk to them, you know, because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to assume the wrong thing. So rather than looking at you as a person, regardless of your color and going over and having that conversation, they say, I'm afraid to have that conversation. I don't want to have that conversation because I don't want to do the wrong thing. Is that the impression you get in sort of the new age uh, cultural shifts in academics? You know, that's a very interesting point. Um, it's a very interesting point. It's hard for me to, to know. I mean, I, that's interesting. That, that perspective, I don't, you know, since I'm not, you know, 
I mean, it's good to hear that perspective and to have this conversation, say, with you. Mm-hmm. Um, because, first of all, I do agree with you that, you know, the thing about National Society of Black Physicists that is interesting is that we welcome all members. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you could become a member as long as you identify and you support our, our, our mission, right? Um, please get behind us, you know, which is we want to support the success um, and the presence of, um, of Black physicists. Right. Um, and and we, so we do have um, you know, ambassadors, right, people who are not black physicists that are members because they again, because they find a home, they find a place where they could go and, you know, have conversations um, or, you know, could could feel could feel some difference in, in or, or to create variation in, in the in um, and realize that the culture in physics right, could be once we start amplifying um people's personalities more for example or or um you know this or sterilizing you know the how you know how people interact right yeah. um or, or how people give talks even or how a seminar is organized mm-hmm. um or just simply how welcoming it's a really simple word welcome yeah you know creating a welcoming environment you know, Forget about it. I mean, I know that we like to use the word inclusivity. Mm-hmm. I get it. I like that word, but sometimes a word gets used so much time, it just becomes a word to use. Yeah. But I like I like the idea. You know, my dad, I mean, when I, I grew up in a Caribbean household in the Bronx, and so whenever somebody would walk into our our house, the first thing my father would do is say, um, the first thing my father would do, um, would say, you know, what are you looking at? Go into the kitchen and open the fridge. You know, you're if you're in my house, you can't don't expect me to do anything. You can just go in and you know make yourself at home. There was this very explicit, you're welcome. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the minute someone you 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 know you create a culture of like you're welcome to be here, I think all this other thing, these conversations, this putting your your heart on the sleeve, right? Mm-hmm. Um becomes rather than only some are welcome well if you you know if only some types of people are welcome then only they're the ones that are able to have the the really cool conversation over some whiskey and and break new grounds in physics right because guess what they're welcome enough to be com- to be um comfortable a- around each other right yeah but if we f- figure out a way to make you know everybody welcome you know yeah. in the conversation mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of a question thing I'm very interested in: yeah. how to create a more welcoming environment for all physicists, right? Yeah. And I definitely think you know I'm very proud to say that I think I've accomplished that in my own research group. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if you go on my website, StefanAlexanderLab.com, you'll see what my you'll see my research group. Yeah. And it is like you know, I feel like you know I have to create this environment for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I gotta be I gotta be able to like you know speak my you know, be myself and um, express myself. Otherwise, I can't do my best physics. So they're tied in with each other. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> I, I could not agree more with that. And, you know, I look at things like a great example is the idea of of uh, the phrase Latin X or Latinx is, is, a, is a thing that I see a lot in physics now. And I think Pew did a poll and they found out that only 3% of, of people in the Hispanic community even uh, use that term, and majority of them don't know what it is. And so I wonder if there's this concept of being like, 
overly inclusive in a different and and I don't mean that like oh we're letting too many people in in you know what I mean I mean um is do people take the idea of inclusivity to uh to the edge of the cliff to the point where now you're you're welcoming in the 3% of people who use the term latinx and you're excluding the 97% of the people who don't use the term latinx are you creating this monoculture even though people are different colors? That, that's what I'm curious about. Yes, yes, I do think that like, yeah, I totally, I, um, I, I agree with that sentiment, yeah. Yeah, so um, these, are, these are things that, I'm developing a, a program right now and um, mm -hmm. the program at, at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, is, is a very simple program and it came out of the DEI efforts. I said to myself, I disagree with almost everything that you want to pursue because you want to be hyper vigilant on color. You want to only admit black students. You want to do all of these things that I feel are going to make black students feel very um, isolated and very singled out and not fit in well with the environment here. And I said, I'm instead going to develop a program and I'm going to be colorblind. And the program is going to be this. I live in a community, right? A very diverse community here in Rochester. Um, why don't I, instead of trying to start a revolution and, and you know, claim that my colleagues are white supremacists or what have you, why don't I reach out in the community and offer students with bad socioeconomic background to come do research on our campus for the summer and learn about physics? And this year will be the first year that that has worked. And it's looking like without instituting any, any um, you know, you have to be this color, you have to be that color, you have to fit this diversity box without doing any of that. It's looking like the program is going to consist of around 70% black students from mm -hmm. poor socioeconomic background. So mm -hmm. my entire point um, in, in a lot of this DEI stuff is stop being revolutionary and start being pragmatic. Help mm -hmm. your community, reach out, do the things, um, you, you know, don't be so performative, if you will. Uh, yes, yes. The performative thing is actually, I think, a big part of like, I think, you know, we're social creatures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just being mindful of, um, you know, of, of, you know, like, okay, wh what am I doing here that's just performative or trying to, you know, again, fit in yeah. um, and make others, yeah. you know, the status quo comfortable. Yes. Um, yeah, I do. Agree. I, I think that's also, first of all, congratulations on that. I mean, another way I like to think about this was that I ran a program um, that, that was about supporting um, students of color in, in the sciences. And when I became the director of that program, one of the things that I did, I instituted, was to, um, um, was to expand the admissions of that program to, to, to students who are smart. Mm -hmm. That's so the first thing was like, you have to be smart and talented yeah. and driven, mm -hmm. right? And yes, we recognize that there is, there is, um, there needs to be support for yeah. students who who are like, you know, so it's not, you know, I, I don't know what the word colorblind is, but I would say that, yeah, I mean, I do see you. I do see that you have a cultural background that, yep. that needs to be recognized and appreciated yes. and seen as valuable and additive to the overall culture. Yeah. Um, but there are these other things, that other uh, metrics that, that, you know, that are important. And if we're striving for excellence and to support that excellence and that promise, I felt that that it was important to expand the program. And we started admission, admitting kids from Appalachia, white kids from Appalachia to be part of the program, mm -hmm. right? And so the program powered like, you know, are, you know, students of color and, you know, um, um, economically disadvantaged kids, students from Appalachia and yeah. they're hanging together, right? 
Yeah. So they have more in common, actually, than some, you know, son of a billionaire, um, you know, yeah. driving a Lamborghini around campus. Yes. No, that's right? exactly that's exactly right. I mean, that like that to me hits the nail on the head. And I think there's a that's a reason that, you know, some 50 years ago, uh, Dr. King was talking about there being, uh, um, you know, many disadvantaged people in America. And it it, it tends to be. Um, it tends to not be associated. Well, it is associated with skin color. Don't get me wrong, but there's more factors at play as well. There's socioeconomic factors. There's cultural factors. And if you only superficially look at skin color, then I don't think you do a great job of getting rid of the monoculture that currently exists in academics. That's my point. And, and I will, I should add to, to explain what I mean by colorblind. So it's not confusing to anyone. Cause I know this word gets misconstrued and things. What I mean by that is, Created missions practices that do not ignore the fact that different cultures exist, but ignore um, the fact that you're trying to fit a quota when you admit people. So look for people who are the best candidates, but also could be the best uh, um, fit for your department. And you met, you mentioned earlier that that doesn't always have to mean the best grade in calculus. You know, that could be be a cultural thing. Like, do you have good ideas? Um do, do, do you work well with others? I mean, there are many other things yeah. outside of a standardized testing score that can can dictate a good candidate. And that's Absolutely. what I mean by that's what I mean by colorblind. Yes. Okay. I totally agree with that. Yep. Yeah. We live so, in the same planet. Yeah. Yes. Do do I have you for uh like 10, 15 more minutes, Stefan? Um 10 minutes is more, yeah. 1230-ish will be um a good thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. Because yeah. there's there's one more thing that I want to talk about. It's it's up the the musical alley, if you will. And I I, I know I've had many people on the show who are musicians, mm-hmm. uh, and it always was odd to me, like like way, way more than you'd expect out of eighty five episodes. You know, it's strikingly no, high number of musicians. And um, one of the things that that I never understood is why music and physics. I never understood the 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 duality of the two. Until it mm-hmm. occurred to me recently, um, I used to think music is all creation and physics is all discovery. I now think that they're 50-50. I think music is equal creation and discovery, and physics mm-hmm. is equally creation and discovery. In the sense that in both the mus- musical universe and the physics universe, um, the sounds already exist and the laws already exist. And it is our idea, to u- it, it is our goal to use our cultural upbringing to go create them in a mathematical language or sound and and or go find them uh, in terms of experiment or um, discovery in the sense of music. So do you do you think that that's the case or do you think I got that all wrong? Um, I think that is the case, actually. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, with that, I think that's a, the perfect way to uh, to sign off. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. You nailed, you, you nailed, yeah, you nailed it on the head. Cool. All right, great. So we're, we'll uh, thank you so much for being here. We, I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Um, yes, this was a very good conversation. You asked some very, um, pe- you know, I think penetrating um, um, uh, questions and points that you rose. And so, um, you know, you definitely got me um, thinking. Um, and, you know, th- these type, kinds of conversation are, you know, they're definitely ongoing right yeah. and um sometimes i'm like do i even have the answers to this right <clears throat> so yeah 
Great. Well, I, I, I can't thank you enough and, and hopefully we can do it again uh, in, the, in the future. Sure. I would love that. Yeah. All right. All right, Stefan, we are um, done recording as soon as I figure out how to hit the stop button. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you. Next week, we have another great episode for you on uh, gravitational waves and, you know, all the fun stuff that you're here for, black holes. Um, but I appreciate you listening. That was a one of the, I guess, more um, probing conversations we've ever had on the on the show. And this is kind of the direction the direction that I sort of want to take a lot of our conversations is, you know, at, at, we can talk about what a black hole is all day long, every day with all of my guests, or we can get like sort of the basic, like they can give us a de- dictionary definition of whatever it is that they're an expert in all day long. But I think, you know, I've been really trying to understand better what is and isn't useful on this show. And I think what that conversation I just have with Stefan is the conversations that I want to have with everyone from now on. Um, very probing conversations, personal conversations that really illuminate for you other people's view of the universe and teaches you a lot about cutting-edge research along the way. So that's the idea. I hope it was that, and I hope it didn't just... Anytime I talk about anything that's cultural, I get angry emails from people who are like, you think Donald Trump's the king? And it's like, hey, guy calm down we're just here trying to learn and get better at life all right there doesn't need to be any hate i mean these people some of you i love some of you are like fans one day and the next day you hate me explain it i don't get it all right fill me in fill me out fill me up anyway uh appreciate um appreciate you for tuning in please rate and review the show five stars and we're gonna do continuation episode over on the patreon so there's going to be 20 minute 30 minute um could be 40 minutes i don't know i haven't recorded it yet um continuation episode of the things that we were talking about on this episode and it's just going to be me um sort of reviewing some of the things i believe when it comes to these cultural aspects in physics and some of the ways that i think the community is going the wrong direction and, and i want you i hope you guys can head over there to the patreon it's only a dollar you get 20 30 minute extra content uh, per episode for a dollar. So what are you going to do? I mean, if you don't do that, I'm not saying you're dumb, but I'm also not saying you're thinking. You could be dumb. I'm not saying you're not dumb, but you could be dumb. You know what I mean? You could be dumb. So go over there, do the Patreon, um, the PayPal, whatever you want to do. Um, and I appreciate you guys. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're listening on YouTube. And, uh, and we'll see you next week. And let's go out with some uh, some great instrumental by the, by the great friend of the show, Chris Culp, Doctor Chris Culp, professor of physics at Lycoming College. Great guy. We've had him on the show twice, maybe three times. He's uh, an expert in many things, and one of the things he loves to do, and I thought it was fitting for this episode, is he makes music. And so he came out with an instrumental as of recent, and I was listening to it, and it was a fucking jam. You know, it was awesome. So we're including it in the. Uh, in the outro and I hope you guys go check out his uh, SoundCloud or you know whatever go consume some more of his music if you, if you dig it <laughs>